0: Welcome, everybody. This is Nick Fletcher from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and Emory University, and this is the January installment 2022 of Interview with the PD Pod. I'm very excited for today. Uh, it's a cold and blustery day here, which uh, for those up north may seem a little bit more tropical, but it's about 31 degrees. It actually snowed for the first time yesterday, so On a gray and cold Martin Luther King weekend, this is the perfect thing to do. I'm excited for my guest today, really because I have a little bit of a love for feet, uh, a sort of surgical foot fetish, if you will. And Vince Mosca was really one of the reasons that this came about. I remember seeing Vince speak for the first time in 2007 at the IPOS meeting. And it really wasn't until then that I understood foot and ankle surgery and foot and ankle concepts and I distinctly remember him describing the foot as a towel that had to be uh, twisted out um, so that if you had hind foot varus that you were going to have forefoot uh, pronation and uh, vice versa and this really stuck with me and through the years I've really been incredibly interested in how he teaches and how he sort of builds and grows the area of foot and ankle surgery in children. Um, I think that he has done a tremendous amount of work helping us better understand this and has really, I think, revolutionized the uh, the treatment of, of foot care in, in children. And at least in my own practice, which certainly involves a lot of things like spine and hip, I see a lot of feet. Um, I do some uh, work in sort of south central Georgia, and there's a tremendous amount of need for this. So I think that this is one of those areas that really links pediatric orthopedics um, across the country because I think while a lot of people have subspecialized foot and ankle surgery, especially in the management of clubfoot, is something that still a lot of us like to do. Uh, Vince probably needs no real introduction, uh, but he originally started his training at Duke, where he did his residency after an internship at Rochester. He did his fellowship at Sick Kids and then moved out west to Seattle, where he has served in leadership positions, including chief of pediatric orthopedics at Seattle Children's for 13 years. He's well-known, as I mentioned, for his foot and ankle care. He's published over 75 articles. And probably one of the most impressive things is the culmination of his life's work uh, in form of a textbook entitled Principles of Management of Pediatric Foot and Ankle Deformities and Malformations, which is really a spectacular book. So I really was looking forward to this. I hope that you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. For those of you, again, who I saw last month at IPOS, it was uh, really great to hear all the positive feedback for this podcast. And I'd like, as always, to thank Carter Clement, the rest of the podcast team and POSNA for supporting this. Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversations uh, with Vince Mosca, and I look forward to seeing you all soon. So, well, welcome, everybody. I'm having the opportunity to sit down with Vince Mosca, who I've really been looking forward to talking with for a while. As I mentioned in the intro, which Vince obviously hasn't heard yet, I remember actually hearing you speak for the first time, and it was at IPOS, and it was in 2007. And I trained at Vanderbilt, and we had a pretty general pediatric uh, orthopedic training, but I remember distinctly being somewhat confused on sort of foot and ankle concepts. And I distinctly remember that your talk, foot and ankle, was first on the Wednesday, and it was very eye-opening to me. And I think since then I have really sort of followed a lot of the principles that you've taught and uh, I also would say, and I, I again mentioned this in the intro, that my practice, although pretty heavy in spine and hip and trauma, actually is, is very heavy in foot, um, and I'm doing a club foot treatment tomorrow, and I'm doing a tip ant transfer, um, and I did one last week, and I did one the week before that, and so my practice is actually pretty heavy in foot and ankle, and I enjoy teaching it uh, a lot, and a lot, I would say a lot of the concepts that I teach are, are things that I learned from you, so I'm very excited for today, and I, I really appreciate you sitting down with me.
1: Well, thanks, nick. i'm I'm really excited to be here and looking forward to uh, what what I can share about how I got interested in the foot. Absolutely. So
0: I I was going back, and I've said before, one of the challenges, uh, as opposed to, I guess, being a professional podcaster who looks at like celebrities, is that none of us have a whole lot of background information on our web pages. But I did see that you uh, sort of, you you started out in Rochester, went down to Duke, and then ended up um, doing your fellowship at Toronto. Are you a Northeastern guy originally, or or an East Coast guy?
1: Completely East Coast. I was born in Brooklyn when I was four. We moved out to Long Island. And then I went to college and medical school in Rochester and then residency at Duke Fellowship in Toronto. And uh, Lynn Staley had a, a job available halfway through my fellowship. I, I flew out to Seattle, mostly just because I'd never seen the city, never thinking I would ever work here because I just didn't. It was the other coast. Fell in love with it. And I've been here for 36 and a half years. That's amazing. Now, what what type of kid
0: were you? Were you a uh, sort of the typical orthopedic jock, or like, what, what what was your childhood like?
1: I was a jock. Yeah, I was a, I was a, a runner and a swimmer, and my application oh. was bicycle riding. So I was really oh. set up to be a triathlete. But I was I was always an athlete. I was a musician too, played trumpet and guitar, and was just always doing things. And uh, medicine was not in our family. Uh, my father was an immigrant from. Italy who came through Ellis Island at age two. His family was very poor, so he went. He had to leave school after eighth grade and go to work. And my mother was born in the U.S. Her family also came from Italy, and she had to go to work after ninth grade because her family was also very poor. So we grew up in Brooklyn, and they didn't have much financial assistance for my sisters and myself, but they certainly gave us every opportunity that they could. And we tried to run with those opportunities as far as we could.
0: Do you still have a lot of family back in Italy?
1: Not that I know of. No, okay. Uh, cause it's it's one of my favorite countries,
0: and my, my wife and I have traveled there a bit. So it would be it would be nice to have an extra reason to go back there.
1: It, it's a great country. I've been there several times, and I guess I look Italian enough that once people speak to me in Italian and they realize that I don't know any other language <laughs> than English, they shun me because I should speak Italian. I look Italian.
0: <laughs> now, um, so so before Rochester, where'd you go to college and medical school?
1: Well, college of medical school were in Rochester, oh, okay, so you did it all up there, yeah,
0: gotcha, okay. Um, that's funny. There was somebody else on the podcast recently, I believe who was also from from that area, so uh, certainly a, a storied program in orthopedics as well so you you moved west. It's interesting because I think the certainly the times in terms of job selection and whatnot uh, are very different now than they were at the time, but um How did you get to know Lynn Staley and how how did that job uh, opportunity come about?
1: When I was a second year resident, I think, yeah, second year, I went to the Tashgen course and the Tashgen course, which is now IPOS, was run by Tashgen. It was nine days, 12 hours of lectures a day, and they had about 40 or 50 well-known faculty of whom Lynn was obviously one of them. And what they did is they read us Tashgen's book, one section at a time. So one famous person would read the etiology of DDH. That person would sit down. The next person would stand up, read the pathogenesis of DDH, sit down. And it was just reading the book to us. Holy cow. 12 hours a day for nine days. At the end of the course, I had taken well over 200 pages of notes. And when I got home, I realized I didn't remember writing any of them down because all I was doing was writing. It was, it was just, there were no breakout sessions. It was just sit in a large room with lots of people and listen to these very famous people read Tashin's book to us. So he impressed me as, as just a great speaker. And then the following year, I went to a course in Colorado, it was sort of a ski course, pediatric orthopedics, and it was in a small group that he was giving the lecture. And I was just mesmerized by how he communicated what he said, how he said it. And I just sort of tucked that away. I didn't know at the time, even as an R3, that I, I was going to become a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. And then halfway through my fellowship, I realized not only was I training with the best of the best at Toronto, but that I liked their lifestyle, the academic pediatric orthopedic lifestyle. Lynn had a job opening that year. He flew me out there to see the place. And he was he was the guy in person that I saw speak and Seattle was a place i just could not imagine it was just a magical place and when he offered me the job before i left those 5 days of interview i said yes and here i am
0: what did your parents think about the fact that you had gone about as far away from them as you possibly could
1: well my father was very ill at the time and when i said i was going to washington he thought i meant washington dc and i didn't tell him uh he actually passed away my second week in practice and he still thought that the Washington that I was going to or went to was the other Washington
0: <laughs> gotcha, but you have no other family out west, no or at the time you didn't wow, okay this is a little deviation from the from the questions that I had uh, wanted to ask, but I had not heard that story before about the Tajin course and drawer, as you know, spoke on his podcast about uh, his his experience i'm I'm curious because you've been uh, with iPoOS forever you know you look at it now and it's amazing to think that it went from a point where people were just reading out of a textbook to sort of the dynamic, interactive, uh, really progressive educational process that they that they uh, provide now. I'm curious, at the time, did you think like, oh, this is a great course, this is going to last forever? Or did you think there's the, there's got to be more than having these experts read to me?
1: I was pretty naive. I thought in my second year that Pediatrics seemed kind of interesting, but I wasn't. I wasn't sure. It seemed like a good course. It seemed like a good opportunity to learn. We were, we were just working our butts off at Duke, and we had pediatrics blended in. There was no children's hospital at Duke at the time, so there was one pediatric orthopedic surgeon. But everybody at Duke did everything. Jay Leonard Goldner's. Idea was that every faculty should do everything. So, even if you really loved and were talented at being a spine surgeon, that you had to do some peds, you had to do some hand, you had to do. Everybody had to be the Renaissance orthopedic surgeon. But most of it went to this one faculty member who was kind of young on the faculty. His name was Bob Ruderman. And I decided I wanted to learn more about it. So I went to Tasha's course, and I had no expectations. I just knew that it was being paid for, and that was great, and I was going to be away from due for a week and a half, and that was really great. <laughs> uh, so uh, so I went, and it was just this machine. It was just this factory, just work, 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 work. But it was nothing like we see today. And you're right. I've been on the iPod faculty, I think, for as long as it's it's been going. A completely different experience, the idea has always been, even under Tashtian, education, 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 but just done in different ways. So some of that may be because of the people who took over the course after Mike Tastian died and or because the concepts of how adult learners learn has changed and the leaders had the opportunity to apply the new understandings of education.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's, uh, it's, I had not heard that before. That's, uh, that's really amazing. So at, at Duke, with the academic setup that you had, like you said, where you were doing a little bit of everything and everybody had, was sort of the a, a jack of all trades and probably a master of none, how did peds come out of that for you?
1: In our, well, oh guys, I'm forgetting. It. It's been a long time, but about, about our third or fourth year, we had the opportunity to do a six-month pediatric rotation at the Greenville, South Carolina Shriners Hospital where Leslie Meyer was the chief. And he was the only full-time pediatric orthopedic surgeon there. Greenville, South Carolina was a very small, small community then. It's still not gigantic, but it was really small then. And there were some excellent orthopedic surgeons, Frank Stelling, a few others, who actually wrote some papers that that have stood the test of time. But he was the guy who was there full-time at the little squat, one-story brick building, who ran the pediatric orthopedic experience. I went there and lived there for six months. And it's interesting, when I was there, I just loved it. I absolutely, I loved Greenville. I loved pediatric orthopedics. And I was thinking, maybe this is what I want to do. So I got back to Duke, and then I couldn't figure out whether I liked pediatric orthopedics or I liked the different lifestyle of being away from Duke. So I waited. But I was really intrigued. I I loved operating on club feet. I loved taking care of kids and just all the things that, well, you know, we're all pediatric orthopedic surgeons. We know why we do this because it's just fun and kids try to get better in spite of us. So I waited. And that was about my second to last year of residency. When I started my chief year, I was on the so-called public service. Duke at the time had two services, the public service run by the residents and the private service run by the attendings. And the attendings oversaw what we were doing, but Pretty much we had free reign to make our decision that they need surgery or not, what we were going to do. We always had to present our cases the night before, usually to Dr. Golden or sometimes another attending. If we said the child or the individual, kids and adults needed a surgery, we would always be screened. But pretty much we made the decisions, they approved, and then they monitored what we are doing in the OR. So beginning of my chief year, I'm on the public service, which was mostly poor children from all around North Carolina. And I said, this is it. Oh man, this is this is what I want to do for sure. It wasn't it wasn't the Greenville factor. It was I really love taking care of kids. So we're talking about a chief year. And I immediately sent out applications for fellowship. Chief year, not wow. R4. Yeah. This yeah. Is chief Year. And I was accepted in Toronto, which was my first choice anyway, but it was just fantastic that applying so late. Because fellowships, the way they were run at the time, I was accepted. And then the rest, they say, is history. And who are your co-fellows? I always love hearing this. So Jack Heidemann, who's El Paso. Mark Christopherson. Oh, wow. um, Nashville. Yeah. Yeah, Nashville. And um, we had several internationals. But then another really good friend, and I'm blocking his name because I haven't seen him in 35 years, was Jeff uh, Jeff, uh, Ackerman.
0: That's always great. Wow. So, so then you went to Toronto and and ended up moving west. What was the apartment like when you joined Dr. Staley?
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. When I joined Dr. Staley, the hospital was called Children's Orthopedic Hospital. It was founded in 1907 by Anna Kleiss, who had a child with so-called rheumatism, and she did a penny drive to help build a children's cottage because in 1907 children had TB. They had polio, they had rheumatism, and the treatment for those conditions at the time was air, that they needed an open air facility away wow. from other people so that they could get cured. There were no antibiotics, There were those diseases weren't understood, but at the turn of last century, that was what kids had in addition to injuries, and so she started this little cottage hospital, and it's called Children's Orthopedic Hospital. By 1950, it had moved locations twice to the location it is now in in the Laurelhurst area of Seattle, and it had become a full-service hospital in 1950. But the administration was always afraid to change the name because everybody knew it as Children's Orthopedic Hospital, and they knew that their kids were going there for urologic problems or heart problems or whatever problems, but they were afraid to change the name. And Seattle wasn't really that cosmopolitan at the time. There weren't a lot, there weren't techie companies coming in from all over the world. So they kept the name, kept the name, kept the name. And um I think I'm still on a target for your question. It was that hospital then became full service hospital. When I got there in 1985, it had really become full service transplant everything. It was every Bit as well known as all the East Coast and maybe Southern big pediatric hospitals that we uh, big pediatric hospitals we know today, but the administration was still afraid to change the name. That said, between July 1985, when I got there, and January 1986, after doing a lot of research and a lot of marketing things, they said, "You know, we need to change it." So they changed the name six months after I got there to Children's Hospital and Medical Center in Seattle. So I was a little insulted that they took orthopedics out of the name, <laughs> but I lived with it. And since then, we've had a couple more name changes. I, I think I may have digressed too much. I answered your question that you asked?
0: Well, so I was curious. So when you came, the department itself, oh, do, I assume yeah. Dr. Staley was the head of it?
1: I'm sorry. Yeah. So so that was sort of an introduction to Dr. Staley, one of the founding members of Postna the co-founder of the Journal of Pediatric Orthopedics. And again, so the founding post was about 1970, 71. JPO was 1980. He was a professor at the University of Washington. And there were about 30 orthopedic surgeons in the community who dabbled at Children's, at children's Orthopedic Hospital. So they'd go to the once-a-week foot clinic, or once a once-a-week hip clinic, or once a once-a-week spine clinic, or once a once-a-week CP clinic. And they would just sort of dabble in it. But it was there their community service. They didn't get paid to do it. They just went to the clinic and all the kids would arrive in the morning. And by the end of the day, they were all gone. It was really a cattle drive. And here you have the founder of of Posna, the founder of JPO, working in this environment of a community hospital. So in my first six months there, again, when they were thinking about changing the name, he also had inside and outside consultants say, what could we do to make this hospital, a destination spot for pediatric orthopedics, and the conclusion was to get full time people. I had already gotten there, but and you were number two. So he was he was the person Howard yeah. King of the King spine classification yeah. had been there for four years already. Wow. But he and the chairman of the department at the University of Washington didn't see eye to eye, so he went into private practice, and so when I got there, he had just gone to private practice in Seattle, so it was Lynn Staley and me. So the conclusion was to have these 30 people participate more, come to the weekly indications conference, participate in journal clubs, teach the residents, you know, just do more things to help make an academic center, and that edict came out the same month we changed the name, January 1986, to Children's Hospital Medical Center, to 15 people said, hey, you kicked us out, we're gone. Now we're down to 15 people. And there was a slow drift over the next few years, and more and more people left. So it was really consolidating the kids' problems and how many of us there were to deal with them. And over the next many years, all the community physicians went to their private practices and did what they really enjoy. We hired slowly more and more full-time pediatric orthopedic surgeons, and we gradually built the department into... A an academic pediatric orthopedic program, and really in parallel, the hospital, in Children's Orthopedic Hospital, was pretty much a community hospital, with academicians. We were the first, but then eventually the whole hospital switched to full time academic pediatric specialists.
0: That's a fascinating story. So, and for those who may not know, Dr. Staley, who unfortunately passed a year ago, I uh, six months ago. So, oh, right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess in 2020, 2021. Um, but uh, there's a textbook that I I think every resident, at least when I was going through, had access to, which was Fundamental of Pediatric Orthopedics, which is an unbelievable introduction. For those young learners out there, it is still available. It is one of the more uh, intuitive uh, and, and easy to understand introduction to the field. And I never got to meet Dr. Staley, but I I remember that textbook. I remember reading it. It's one of the few textbooks I've sort of read cover to cover because it was able to be read cover to cover. Um, But I'm curious if you could speak towards, you know, towards him and
1: what what he meant to to you and your career. What he meant to me is so hard to capture in however long this is going to be. I wrote a tribute and gave a tribute to him after his passing. It's actually written in the recent issue of JPL, and he was one of the most remarkable people I've ever known. He understood people's needs around the globe. He understood mentorship. He understood how to educate. Like I said, the reason I I wanted to come here was he was such a great communicator, such a great educator. And then he also realized that being a mentor means not only helping educate the next generation or next individual, but also doing it selflessly, so that you want for your your protege, your mentee, what you want for your kids. You want them to be better than you are. And he just nailed it in such an understated selfless way. I I have never known anybody like him. I feel so fortunate that he chose me to be his his protege. He Among the things he did was, early on, because of his research and writing and teaching, he was invited all over the world to speak. And when he got to other countries, particularly resource-challenged countries, he realized there were no books. There were really bright, young orthopedic surgeons, but they didn't have books. They didn't have knowledge. And our books are just so darn expensive. The reason I've written 25 or 26 book chapters is if you write a chapter, if they, you know, if you're lucky enough for them to invite you to write a chapter, you get the book for free. It's yeah. worth it. <laughs> it's worth it. <laughs> uh, and so what he said is, how can I get information to them? And we're talking about in the 80s and 90s where more people, more orthopedic surgeons in developing countries has computers than they had books. And that's when he thought about, number one, doing desktop publishing so he could write print books that they could afford, and that morphed into then doing things online. When he retired at age 62 in 1995, he started Global Help, the website where the Ponsetti monograph is and all these other publications and videos, great, global-help.com, just amazing resource because all you need is a computer that you need to live anyway these days, and all this information is available to you, and you don't have to spend four or $500 on a textbook. His books, like the one you talk about, Principles of, of or Pediatric Orthopedics, it's a color book. It's a picture book with a few words, lots of pictures, nice, colorful sketches to get the information across without being bogged down in the three or four volumes of the other pediatric orthopedic texts. It was just brilliant. And at the time... He could do desktop publishing and make them available for $25. Somebody in Cambodia, an orthopedic surgeon in Cambodia, can afford that. They can't afford the big text. And when I started going on the circuit, like he had done a generation before me, I found the same thing in the 90s, uh, early 2000s. I'd go to a place in Vietnam, and there was a bookshelf, and it had books that they had printed one of the textbooks, and then bound it primitively. So it wasn't purchased volume. They, they found one book, and they Xerox copied it and then bound it. That was their information. And it was usually a two or three old edition of the book. So all the things he did was to get information out there. And he did it with desktop publishing, color books for adults, or picture books for adults, and then doing it through the internet. And so it's just the humanitarian effort that I, again, so endeared me to him. He, he really had it all figured out.
0: Yeah. For those who haven't been on the global health webpage, uh, I was on it yesterday and I mean, it's, it's a remarkable resource. I think it's, it's incredible that he had the vision and the thought to do that because I think it's the kind of things thing that I'm sure a lot of people see the need, uh, but for him to see it and then an act change and follow through. And, you know, it's been perpetuated over time. is just, is so cool. Um, well, good. So, so, you know, I wanted to move on to sort of your, your love, which is uh, in the area of foot and ankle, which it, it's funny because like I said, I, I first heard you speak in 2007 and I, I do a lot of spine surgery and I do a lot of hip surgery. And there's been a lot of change at IPOS through the years in terms of who's on the podium. And obviously there are, there are going to be some people who stick around, but you've been a constant. And I think that you're, you are work in foot has really revolutionized an area of our specialty that probably was not really considered a subspecialty when you started. And I'm curious about your introduction to this area, how this came about, and how you chose to focus on that rather than some other things you do, because I know you do neuromuscular and you do limb deformity and and that stuff as well.
1: In my training in residency, I worked with Jay Leonard Goldner, and Dr. Goldner was a renaissance man. He treated everything but he had a real passion for club foot, and he developed a surgical technique for club foot correction that was—it was just amazing. It was—it wasn't written up as a primary article. It was written in almost a review journal, but it was so many steps, doing so many things. Each operation took about four hours, and and everybody needed surgery. In fact, Dr. Goldner's definition of a club foot was congenital equino-cable varus that needs surgery. <laughs> That was it. Yeah, it was the whole sentence. Congenital equinal cable that needs surgery. So if it didn't need surgery, it wasn't a club foot. And we're talking about in the early 80s. This was so long before Ponsetti came out of the closet, which was 1995. So that's what I grew up with. In fact, I will admit that the reason I became a pediatric foot surgeon is that I love to operate on club feet. Not that I love to treat club feet, that I love to operate on club feet. It is that, a fun that, surgery. That said, in 1995, I was one of the first kids on the block to drop it like a hot potato. When I read the article by Cooper and Dietz from Iowa, and then the following year when when Ponce's book came out, for me, if, if I didn't operate on the club foot, now I mean a perk tenotomy. I mean the full meal deal, the whole circumferential release. Then it wasn't a club foot. That's what I grew up with. That's what I did from nineteen eighty-five to nineteen ninety-five. And I almost stopped cold turkey. I had to have intervention because I stopped it like boom, on the spot when I realized Ponsetti was so much better as a technique. But anyway, so I learned clubfoot from Goldner. I learned some other things about feet there. I didn't quite understand what I was doing, but I learned some techniques. Then I went to Toronto and I worked with Norris Carroll, brilliant guy. Colin Mosley, brilliant guy. Both did a lot of work with the foot. Norris Carroll had his own clubfoot operation. But I was so impressed that Goldner's operation and Carroll's published operation were completely different. They, comp- they understood the pathoanatomy completely differently, and they had 85% good to excellent outcomes. What the heck? And then Colin Mosley, who didn't have his own clubfoot operation, was a brilliant thinker. Oh, my God. These are just brilliant guys. And Colin did something like a McKay. And I thought, wow. And again, McKay had 85% good to excellent outcomes with a third, completely different understanding of the pathoanatomy and of the surgical steps to achieve that. I was so confused. I, I I said, one of these has to be right. They can't all be right. Maybe it's the assessment. All I knew was there was something. I, in fact, I said to myself, I will never, once I realized I was going to become an academic pediatric surgeon, I will never write an article on how I operate on club feet. And that's <laughs> and you still haven't. That's right. I've written other things about club feet, but never about how I do the operation. So, so that was what I had. And then I came to Seattle and there were lots of kids who had complications from clubfoot surgery. And the reason is Seattle Children's Hospital is the only academic children's hospital in five states. Our medical school is the only medical school in five states. Washington, Wyoming, Alaska, Montana, and Idaho. WHAMMY was it's, it's the acronym. And so what we cover as a children's hospital and as a medical school is 27% of the landmass of the United States. Not 27% of the population, but 27% of the landmass. So that means that there's a lot of rural communities out there. And for tertiary care, everything comes to Seattle, especially then now other places building up in the country. But at the time, we were the destination for kids from 27% of the landmass. And that also means that orthopedic surgeons in these remote areas did more than any similarly trained general pediatric orthopedic surgeon in seattle they were treating supercondulars they were treating club feet surgically because that was what you did at the time and when i started practice what i saw was so i saw a few idiopathic infants with club foot but half of my operations were second third fourth and fifth operations on club feet from well-intended surgeons club foot surgery doesn't work that well even in even the best of hands but if someone's doing it infrequently the results are not going to be that good more often so i i do it every day i go in there i say oh my god this week i have one virginal club foot and i have two redus and that was my every week after week i was operating all these club feet and often through scar tissue they were all different iatrogenic deformities are much worse than the untreated club foot so there's got to be some pattern here i have to be able to figure this out because i can't do the same thing for every one at the same time, I was seeing a lot of kids with cable varus foot deformities from marie tooth disease. I had seen a few in my residency and fellowship, but again, it was like, oh my gosh, every week another CMT cable varus foot. It's a genetic disease, and I think that there's just a concentration of the CMT genes in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> because I've operated on over six hundred cable varus feet. Wow. Yes, yeah, thirty-five years, but that's a lot of cable varus feet. Yeah. And then what I realized with Kevir's feet was I knew a lot of techniques, but kivelvere's feet were all different. Even in a family, one sibling started the foot deformities at age four, another not till 12. Some had numbness, some didn't have numbness in their toes. There were there were all these different patterns. So I couldn't just do the same operation for all of them. There seemed to need to be some algorithmic approach based on understanding of that particular foot. And that's what it was. A lot of CMT feet that weren't all alike. How can you do the same? thing for all of them, and a uh, iatrogenic deformities of well-intended but poor outcome clubfoot surgery that made me focus on, let me figure out how do we understand, let me first understand biomechanics, and also make it simple, because I think it's, it was so complicated back then that nobody wanted to even try, so I said, let me try to understand the biomechanics, and then number two, let me figure out how to assess these deformities, iatrogenic or idiopathic but variable, and then how can I use all that information to come up with an algorithmic management plan for them? And but at the end of the day, I think I figured out those things, the biomechanics, the assessment, and the management principles. And what really helped me put it all together was IPOs. Because every year, I, in the beginning, I would be, and we're talking about 20 years ago, they'd say, well, talk about club feet, talk about um, cavus foot, talk about vertical tails. And i talk about you know, it's like attached to old course, etiology, pathogenesis, blah, blah, blah. And then Jack in particular would always, no, I guess it was also Chad. They'd, they'd sort of take a little spin on things. They'd make me talk about things that were off the beaten path, a variation on just the basic topic. Some minutia minutiae point. So I had to make slides for that. Another minutiae point. <clears throat> we're talking about macrodactyly. We're talking about things that you usually don't talk about at, at a general meeting, Because at general meetings, you have to talk about the big topics. You can't do the minutia. Well, year after year after year, if I post talks on the minutia, I realized I was developing quite a set of slides, of images, of, of text that all flowed together based on biomechanics assessment and management principles. And then I said, wow, you know, this is starting to look like a book. And it wouldn't be too much more work to convert it from the slides and talks to a book. Every year I kept being challenged by the organizers of IPOS, challenged by the people at the podium asking me questions. And then one day I realized I wasn't getting many questions from the audience. And I thought either I'd become really, really boring <laughs> <laughs> or I'm explaining it well enough that there aren't many questions left. Well, once you write a book, you're done. They, yeah, It's hard for people to ask you questions after you finish the book. So I said I thought I was getting there I'm getting so few questions so I thought I'd be a little egotistical and think it wasn't that I was boring it was that I explained it well and that's when I converted it all into a book
0: That's amazing. Now, uh, but this obviously sort of happened, uh, you know, organically over time. And it's funny because one of the questions that I've written down is uh, how you disseminated knowledge at IPOS. And I think that that's a really fascinating story. But at some point, your practice must have gone with you, I don't want to say dabbling, but where foot and ankle was part of your practice to all of a sudden, this was a regional and probably national and international referral practice. Um, uh, How far into your career do you think that occurred and and what were some of the changes that that came into play because it's one thing to have a kid with a with a club foot who's from you know Oregon a state away and it's another thing to have a family fly to you to see you from Florida because you're the foot and ankle guru and you're having to sort of manage their problem basically cross country
1: i believe there are a few things that that came together that that made that all happen as I said, when I started, it was Lynn and me, and 30, and then quickly down to 15 other people. Within four years, as the other, as the remaining 15 dwindled off, we hired two more pediatric orthopedic surgeons, Mark Dales and Scott Hoppinger, mm-hmm. and they had just come out of their fellowships. So then there were four of us who were trying to keep up with the large volume of kids who needed our care, and Lynn had decided he wanted to write more books. He wanted, he took a couple of sabbaticals. In my first five years, he took three years of sabbaticals to write books. So we were really burdened with a large volume of, of kids who needed care. I was developing my interest in the foot even then, as the 30 orthopedic surgeons went down to 15 and then lower and lower, suddenly there were there was just so much pathology. There were so many things to see and do. And and I and I think the first orthopedic surgeons to drop out with those who were taking care of the kids with foot deformities. So I had more feet that were left for me than for other pathologies. And that was what I was realizing. Yeah, I really enjoy this. I, I have some basic training, but as I said before, it, I came up with different conclusions and I understood things differently than my excellent teachers had taught me. And so it's nothing against them. It's just, I just thought differently about what I was seeing and, and how to, to manage it. So that's how it evolved. It was just a lot of volume, opportunity for me to see things, try to understand them. And then in about, oh, in those early years, Lynn had been asked to write a chapter for a new book called The Foot by Jim Drennan. And I think he really had the time to write it. He said, you know, I just don't have time to write this. I have a junior partner. Would you mind if he wrote the chapter on flat foot? Because Lynn was well-known as saying flat foot is normal, get over it. He did all the research to say babies are flat-footed, kids are flat-footed, adults are flat-footed, get over it. It's just another foot shape. Well, that was an early introduction for me to start writing about flat feet. And then doing more and more, I got more and more into it. And I think the biggest thing that got me into foot was from 1985 to about 1988, I saw some kids who had the Evans procedure performed by an orthopedic surgeon on our faculty who worked at Harborview. And he was specialized in trauma, and he also was interested in the foot. And he spent two months with Dylan Evans in Cardiff, Wales, for a mini fellowship a few years before that. I remember in my first three years, I saw a few kids in clinic who had undergone the Evans procedure, as Evans described it. And they had foot pain, and they had a big lump on the lateral side of their feet. So they came to see me. I was the, you know the new guy. And I thought, I saw the before x-rays, I saw the after x-rays, and the feet looked much better. But they had a big lump on the lateral side, and they had pain there. And their calcanea cuboid joints were subluxated. And the lump was the anterior fragment of the calcaneus that had subluxated because Evans, all Evans said was cut the anterior calcaneus 1, 1.5 centimeters proximal to and parallel with the calcanea cuboid joint, put a piece of tibia in there and go home. He didn't say anything about the soft tissues. He didn't say anything about the coincident forefoot supination or the tight Achilles tendon, all he said was cut the bone and usually through the middle facet, distract the osteotomy, put the bone in, and life is good. And in 1983, Phillips reviewed his patients, and most of them were doing pretty well, but some of them had pain at the CC joint. And I had read that article at that point, and I saw these feet that there was something about the concept was right, the technique wasn't described. And so I just set out to figure out. If it's the right concept, and I didn't have a good solution to flat feet, I, I I just, from my training, I didn't believe it was a good, well-described procedure. And I actually hadn't heard about the Evans yet until I got to Seattle. And then I saw the complications of it, so I immediately set out to try to understand it. I got bone models. I got cadaver feed. I did all these things to try to understand. And then as I started doing the procedure, I saw lateral soft tissues are tight. Medial soft tissues become redundant. You correct the hind foot, you uncover the forefoot deformity. Once the foot's corrected, the tight Achilles tendon was what drove the pain in the first place. So I just pretty quickly, within a short period of time, found all these other associated procedures that, if done, would make the concept work. And that was it. It was just going back to the principles, biomechanics, and then algorithmic management that came up with it. Well, that early success, presented at the meetings, published pretty quickly, was sort of what put me on on the map of, hey, this guy seems to understand foot deformities. And I held on to that one and tried to use my concepts and principles to get into other parts of the child's foot. And that's where we are today. So it started by seeing a lot of foot deformities, seeing a lot of questions that needed to be answered, coming up with an approach to them, finding an operation that has really stood the test of time. I, it, I, I wrote it up and it was published in 1995, but it, It was already presented several times, several years before that. And I haven't changed anything. I haven't changed one thing from what's written in 1995, <laughs> I do exactly the same.
0: That's a great story. And, and I do the same because I learned, you know, from you and, and uh, you know, I still have the master's technique textbook and I refer the residents to that. And now, I mean, now it's all available on, on positive Academy and so they can watch the video of you teaching how to do it, but, but it's remarkable. And it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating story because of something that you were alluding to at the beginning with Dr. Staley, which is you took a problem that your sort of mentor, uh, and, and partner didn't think was a problem and not only sort of modified an operation that was, I, I don't know, I, it wasn't probably wasn't established, but it was the operation to do at the time, but you, you improved it and you created something that even when I was going through, I mean, I, you know, I graduated from residency in 2009, but I was, I was working with Neil Green and Greg Vencio in 2004, uh, four and 2003, I don't think we ever did it because I think both of them still held a, a similar thought that the fl- that the flat foot is just a different variant of, of normal and that it didn't need treating. And now that I've been in practice and I've done – you know, a fair amount of flat foot surgery, I, I tend to find it one of the more rewarding operations if done in the right patient and done correctly. So, so it's, yeah. but it's crazy. I mean, you, you really took something that, that your mentor didn't think was a problem, showed that it was a problem and then created a lasting solution for it, which is pretty cool.
1: Well, a couple of points there, Neil Green and Greg Mencio are former Dukies. They're Dukies. Like <laughs> yeah. uh, the other thing is that when, when I, saw these kids who had painful flat feet with tight Achilles tendons. Lynn Staley acknowledged that, yes, in that group where the, the pain can't be relieved any other way, then surgery is indicated. It's just a small group, and I believe that to this day. The fact that I've operated on so many flat feet is not because my indications are any different now than they were 35 years ago, and I don't think they're any different than Lynn Staley's were. It's just that once you develop a procedure, they sort of migrate to find you. So I do a lot of flat foot surgery because they come specifically for that. But my indications, just like the technique hasn't changed in 35 years, the indications haven't changed. The technique hasn't changed. I still always start my lectures If I'm just talking about flat foot. I spend at least a third of the talk saying that you shouldn't operate on flat feet. I said, but if you have to, this is how you should do it.
0: (laughs) Now I'm curious. Uh, This was not part of the, the questions that I'd written, but, um, I am in practice with a number of people who trained under Dr. Mubarak, and you guys have a little bit of a different approach to flat feet. I'm curious sort of over the years at your contemporaries, so sort of how that, how that discussion went through time, because he'd, uh, or he advocated for what's known as the triple C procedure, which is a
1: little bit different than your approach. I've known Scott for my entire professional career. He was a fellow in Toronto a few years before I was there. So we, we lived pretty parallel lives. We both at the time had long curly hair and mustaches. <laughs> and <laughs> I think that Dr. Salter used to confuse us a lot. But that being said, he came up with a different understanding and management of flat foot. And we've, we've debated at meetings. And again, I already mentioned Dr. Salter's name. Scott and I agreed to disagree without being disagreeable. That's, that's a quote from Dr. Salter. That's great. My approach was to address the flat foot at the site of deformity, and that's clearly the interval between the anterior and middle facets of the subtalar joint, that the calcaneal lengthening osteotomy corrects deformity at the site of deformity. So let's think about limb deformity in general. You know, the George Paley, John Herzenberg, where's the cora? That's where you do your deformity correction. Well, in the, in the subtalar joint, the foot, the cora, the foot cora, is between the anterior and middle facets in the flat foot. So that's why I address it there. The triple C will make the foot look better, but it will not address the primary deformity, which is malalignment at the tail and navicular joint. So the foot will look better. It's joint preserving, just like the calcaneal lengthening osteotomy is joint preserving, but it sort of dances around. It creates a deformity rather than correcting the deformity. So my analogy for that is if you do a Salter osteotomy at the hip, you correct the deformity at the side of the deformity. If you do Chiari, you're creating a deformity rather than actually treating the deformity, and that's and that's the analogy. The calcaneal lengthening osteotomy is a salter. The triple C is a chiari. Thinking of it as the acetabulum pedis, which you coined,
0: yeah. right? As, as no, no, concept. actually,
1: Scarpa coined that in 1818. Okay. But uh, I, I'm the only one still alive who knew him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so, so that's that's the difference there, and and one of Scott's concerns about the calcaneal lengthening is that it's intraarticular, And I've written about this so many places, so many times, it's technically not intraarticular. articular we, we stand on the middle facet, we stand on our posterior facet. The, the anterior facet is lateral, plantar lateral to lateral, to the head of the talus. It's only there as a site of attachment of the spring ligament. So as long as we don't cut through the middle facet the, the way Evan said, and cut between the anterior and middle facets. We are technically not intraarticular, and the other reason for not being concerned was again. I've operated on six or hundred or more flat feet in my 35 years of doing my technique, the way I do it. I have never had a child come back with pain or degeneration in the subtalar joint. I think that's a pretty good study.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's great. So I I, I love this. I've actually got this list of sort of foot and ankle diagnoses that I think a lot of us struggle with. And, I'm, and I would, this is a little bit of a rapid fire session, but that doesn't have okay. to be rapid. So, so you mentioned club feet and it's interesting. So my first day on pediatric orthopedics, I remember like it was yesterday, although I think my brain was a little bit foggy because I was up for 24 hours on call, but I did four back to back to back to back PMRs with Neil Green and Neil uh, who was really a large reason why I went into pediatric orthopedics which which but could be a little bit gruff you know took the resident through the procedure while I was nodding off and falling asleep uh, in the background and I thought wow this is a great surgery like you said I mean it's a really fun surgery and now I might do for a year probably not and so I think that the the question that I have is twofold so one is The complex clubfoot, especially now when you get into the revision clubfoot, is something that we do have an alternative of, you know, a Ponsetti or a revision Ponsetti or a revision revision Ponsetti. I've struggled more and more with like, actually, I'm doing a PMR tomorrow on a child with a bad behavioral problem who's been through Ponsetti three times and the kid's four And he's all over the place. And the family finally said, listen, we're not doing that again. And so I'm curious about your current thought processes on the kids who either from the foot deformity itself or the social situation aren't great Ponsetti candidates. They can certainly be Ponsetti, but they're not great candidates. And how are you viewing those differently than maybe you did 10 years ago or 15 years ago?
1: The McKay procedure, Douglas McKay from Washington, D.C., is the surgical embodiment of the Ponsetti non-surgical clubfoot treatment. I mentioned that Goldner had one idea about how you correct club feet, and Norris Carroll had a different one. And McKay, if you read his article well, he understood that the subtalar joint is severely inverted and the ankle joint is in Aquinas. That's the pathology. And that the posterior lateral corner, the calcaneofibular ligament is really tight, needs to be released. Ponsetti, in most cases, his method, his technique, can address the pathology non-surgically, understanding the pathoanatomy that is as described. McKay, who published in the early 80s, late 70s, I think, his surgical technique is, again, the surgical embodiment of understanding the pathoanatomy as Ponsetti understood it. If you need to operate you need to do a McKay. A la carte McKay, because some of the multiple deformities will stretch. And so if, if they've already stretched, then you don't need to treat them. But otherwise, you just do it step by step in the proper order, and you'll get a foot that's well corrected. There'll be scar tissue. You don't want to overcorrect it, but the McKay is the technique. When surgery was the only solution to resistant club feet, pre-ponsetti, unless you lived in Iowa, there were many techniques being done by many surgeons who had either a little or a lot of experience with club feet. And as I say in my book, one of the principles is it could be a bad technique or a bad technician. And bad doesn't mean you're a bad person, but it means that if you're not very skilled in it, you're not doing very frequently, and it's a very difficult operation, by the way, unless you're doing a lot of them, then you could have a bad outcome not because the technique was wrong, but it was because maybe it wasn't done as well as someone who does a lot of them. And, and so there are some feet that, in my practice, I get I get an email almost every single day from somebody in the world asking me a clinical question. They send me a PowerPoint presentation, and I write back with my recommendations. Really, it's about one a day. And uh, many of them are on feet, and I say, my gosh, you know, I... Look at this foot. I see all these pictures, and they they just, like, it hasn't gone anywhere. So sometimes you just have to operate. They're usually the fat feet. I don't know how to define fat, but if the diameter is as great as <laughs> the I call that a fat foot. Yeah, yeah. You can't cast it. You can't brace it afterwards. It's just a challenge. They develop the transtarsal cavus, the cock-up toe. And sometimes you just have to operate. So you try as hard as you, hard as you can but at some point, you, you just can't do it anymore, especially with the fat feet, because you can't put three-point pressure on something that's five centimeters long and five centimeters thick. And then if you're going to operate, then we get them to the next stages. If you're doing two to four a year, like it sounds like you are, and then I am too, because I, I just can't get 100% of them. I can't. I'm sorry, Dr. Ponsetti. I try like, <laughs> like, like I just can't. Then go carefully use your principles, use your standard approach with the McKay as your guide, as your map, and then you know that you'll be able to get the foot straight, it will be stiff, but this was not just another club foot there. So that's my approach to it, is Ponsetti method of non-surgical management is better than surgery, but surgery does not work 100% of the time, and if you really try so hard and reserve surgery only for those that you just you're you're typically successful. You can't don't feel guilty. It's different collagen. It's a different foot. You have to move on. You have to help the child. And and the other isn't working. So stop.
0: So that, that's awesome. I, that was incredibly uh, insightful. I'm I, take it a step further. So the thing that I find is. The hardest feet that I get now are the ones obviously that are going to end up being operated on, which means that as opposed to that day that I was with Neil Green where we did four primary you know year old Club feet, which were pretty straightforward, the soft tissues aren't disrupted. Now I'm seeing, like you said, the kid who's had four operations has 30 degrees of rigid, rigid Aquinas that I think is a complex deformity with uh, internal rotation of the subtalar joint or inversion of the subtalar joint. And you know, I feel like you can release everything in the back and you still can't get the kids to neutral. I'm curious. How some of the principles that you have with your interest in deformity correction elsewhere has has helped you here? So, for example, do you use frames? Do you use anterior guided growth? Or are there roles for that in these really really stiff revision 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 club feet?
1: There's a whole list of things that can be done. Obviously, in the babies, the first few years you can't do much guided growth, but by the time kids are late childhood, early adolescence. If the foot is reasonably good, but it's an Aquinas and they have a flat top talus and they have of the distal tibia, guided growth I've used. You have to do it early because the distal tibia grows very, very slowly. So if you're gonna put a plate on the front of the tibia to guide the and, and reorient the ankle joint, you need to do it before age ten or there isn't enough time, especially for girls. As far as the other really stiff, stiff, stiff feet, if we're talking I guess you're you're talking about idiopathic rather than syndromic
0: neuromuscular, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, then you could use a frame. I haven't used frames in in years. I learned frames for foot deformity when I visited up in 1989. I just in my practice I don't see much of a role for it. But I think there is a role for it in certain feet. If the only alternative is amputation, then I, I think that could go. And the other thing is to remember that collagen responds to the viscoelastic properties of creep and stress relaxation. That's that's how we correct the feet in the first place. We spend some time stretching with a constant load. We apply a cast, stress relaxation. Then they come back and we do the same thing. We stretch, creep, cast, stress relaxation, and on and on. Some of these feet that come to surgery, the ones you're describing, when the incisions are open or incision is open, you can get the foot into a reasonable position and you can't close the skin. Well, you close the skin, Cast in the best position that doesn't overstress your sutures, and then come back a week later and do serial casting. And you keep doing serial casting, collagen will respond, skin will heal. I was never a fan of getting the correction and then leaving the skin open and waiting for secondary intent healing. It's really kind of ugly. But if you put the foot down, and don't wait too long, a week or two, and then start stretching that early healed skin, you can often get really good uh, correction that you couldn't get initially. You get the correction, but you couldn't close the skin initially.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I I tend to agree with that. We, it's funny because we go back and forth. Sometimes we leave the skin a little bit open. I think in some of the neuromuscular feet, it's less of an issue, but uh, but in the in the idiopathic ones, I think it, it, you know it doesn't heal quite as uh, quite as nice, and so serial casting afterwards helps. Um, so the next. One that I wanted to go on to is something that I actually emailed you about a long, long time ago. I know you get an email a day, like you said, if not more, so you wouldn't remember it. But Cave is Foot, you, you alluded to earlier, I tend to find in my discussion with uh, with our residents to be one of the more entertaining discussions. There's a lot going on. And I'm curious how your uh, management of the cavus, for your, your thought process in the cavus foot has progressed over time. We, we actually do what, what I think you have uh, suggested, which is to stage it. So we do a softening procedure initially. And this was actually based on an email that you had sent Jeff Martis, who was at Vanderbilt a long, long time ago, that I still have. It's in my Gmail and I refer to it regularly. But how did that concept come about? How is your how is your thought process for cavus foot changed over time?
1: It was one of the it was one of the concepts that I, I developed early on because what I learned in my training was number one that they're all like do the same thing. Number two was to try to do everything you could in one setting. So I saw that it was hind foot deformity, forefoot deformity, cavus, and I tried to just jam the foot into the right position and I got necrosis on the plantar medial aspect of the foot, the concavity of the deformity. Uh, it just it just wouldn't make it, especially if the feet were really severe and really stiff. And then I think I read Sherm Coleman, who suggested doing some early releases and then doing serial casting. And and then maybe going back for some more surgery. It never really caught on, but I, I think I read it in his book, perhaps, where he said, do some releases on the medial aspect, do some serial casting, and then maybe six weeks later, go back. And I thought, wow, that's that's just a lot of work. But but I, I was already seeing that the one stage wasn't working because I didn't like all the necrosis. But I thought that six weeks was too long. So I said, well, maybe maybe we could do a little staged uh, three weeks apart. And I was seeing that the skin was tolerating it much better, but I still wasn't sure what to do in each stage. Then I came down to the biomechanical understanding about the plantar medial soft tissues. I released those the first time. Once you release the clavus, the toe flexors become secondarily tight, release the toes. And then before we do anything that I don't want to stretch, I don't want to do an osteotomy and then stretch it in the cast. I don't want to do a tendon. You can't do a tendon transfer because it doesn't look like a foot yet. So so I came up with the either superficial or deep plantontomia release and tenotomy of long toe flexors as procedures that with serial casting or maybe only one serial cast would not be negatively affected. And then, with more skin to work with, we do the second stage. Second stage then would be correct the rest of the deformity with osteotomy or osteotomies, and perform your tendon transfers. So that, that's how all that came about. And I wrote about that early on, and I, I lectured a lot uh, about it a lot. But people kept talking to me at, at meetings. We we're talking many, many years ago, saying wow, you know, I'm doing your techniques, but I, I had the problem with the skin. So I always asked, well, did you do it in two stages? Well, no. I said, well, that's the key. The key is you got to do it in two stages, but it's a second operation. Yeah, but do you want to treat the necrosis or do you want to treat the foot? Second operation isn't that much more expensive than treating the infection and wound necrosis. In people in developing countries, sometimes they can't do the second operation because they can't get the kids back. Well, you know that that's sad but it's it's a reality and i think in some countries they actually have to do triple arthrodesis just because they can't do it in two stages safely yeah that's interesting Um, that approach that approach is all based on what's rigid what's flexible how rigid how flexible and then what are the muscle imbalances do your softening procedure and then i realized that it just took one stress relaxation a two-week cast to give me enough skin to do the second stage safely in almost every case.
0: I'm curious, we talk about this a lot. What percentage of your cavus foot reconstructions require calcaneal osteotomy? Because certainly some of them with a Coleman block test are a little bit more flexible. I tend to find that on on some of them, I regret that I didn't uh, do it. um, And I haven't regretted that I did. And I'm curious, because we were actually talking about this the other day, uh, your thoughts on that.
1: I have one regret in my professional career not doing enough posterior calcaneal osteotomies for cavus foot so i do the, the coleman test i actually do it radiographically i don't just look at the foot on the block i actually get x-rays with the foot on the block so i can confirm radiographically whether the subtalar joint is flexible or rigid now if you can align the subtil joint with the plantar medial release that's good the only way you can avoid, oh, and if you do the plantar media release, you can either eliminate the need for posterior calcaneal osteotomy or do less translation with it. So what I mean by that is if you do a plantar media release and you align the subtalar joint. Next thing you have to do is correct the plantar flexion of the first ray, the pronation of the forefoot. That's done with a meocuneiform plantar-based opening wedge osteotomy. If you can dorsiflex the first ray completely and you have aligned the tail and the joint with the previous plantar media release, the hind foot is in neutral. You're done. If the foot is more stiff because they've come to you later, you've done your plantar media release, you've confirmed in stage one, confirmed that that the subtil joint is perfectly aligned, the tail and the joint is perfectly aligned. That's good. Now, the only way to avoid a posterior calcaneus osteotomy is to make sure you get complete correction of the forefoot pronation. Because if you have to leave any forefoot pronation, it's still the driving force for hindfoot varus. So, so you don't know that until you've done the release in the first stage. Second stage, you put your, your bone in the medial cuneiform, form, you dorsiflex the first ray, and then you have to assess the foot clinically. I use a platform; it's called a PD pedal, and I say, okay, now transverse plane of my metatarsals is perpendicular to the tibia. Let me look at the hind foot. Neutral, we're done. Varus, add a one centimeter translation of the posterior calcaneus. If you don't do those other things first, though, the plantaromia release and the mediocuneiform, you'll have to move the tuber of the calcaneus three centimeters, the full width of the bone. Yep. And that's hard to do. It's hard to move it a centimeter. But usually, if there's any residual deformity, you just add that on. And that's what I haven't done enough of. My one regret.
0: <laughs> That's fascinating. I love that. Um, so I, I wanted to move on and ask you. You had already mentioned global health, but I think that you alluded to something a second ago, which which is tough. Which is, you have a lot of great knowledge in foot and ankle uh, principles and biomechanics and and uh, management. But a lot of the I, I did a uh, a mission trip with Greg Mencio as a resident, and I was I was amazed at the complexity. Of the foot and ankle deformity in the developing world i mean as a spine surgeon we also see a lot of you know these kids who need vertebral column resections and get them done with no no fluoro and it's you know you do the resection and then get a single shot x-ray to make sure everything's in the right place which always amazes me but foot but the foot and ankle pathology is is incredible how do you think we can continue to disseminate knowledge similar to what the poncetti work that's been done out of Iowa, um, w- would do, but, but in all areas of foot and ankle, um, overseas, cause it's, there, there's so much complexity.
1: When I told Lynn, I, Lynn said I was going to write, write a book. He said, well, you want to put it on global help? And I said, you yeah, know, I think I would, but I, I would really like my first book to be one that I could smell. <laughs> I could sit down in a, in a soft armchair and, and smell. Um, so, so I went for print with Walters Kluwer, and, I, and I'm, I'm glad I did. I think the price point was, was pretty good. It's, it's not great, but if you get it on Amazon, it, it, the price point is better. And I'm about to write my second edition. I'm going to start after I retire in 100 days. And, and so the first edition will be really cheap then, <laughs> and that should help disseminate it. I that, that, that mean, that's a really, really good question. Global Help is one of the best ways to disseminate information. About a month or two ago, I wrote a new monograph for Global Health. It's called The Principles and Management of Clubfoot. Lynn Staley had the Ponsetti Method book that's in its third edition, and he asked me to write the fourth edition. And I was reluctant because I wanted something more involved without being too complicated. But I thought that that was a great introductory book, but I, I thought it should go to the next level. And I dragged my feet really for years. And then finally I said, okay, he's my best friend. I'll, I'll do it. And when I wrote it and I showed it to him, he said, this isn't an update. This is a new book. And he said, why don't you just write this as your book? I said, well, if, if that's gonna happen, then I'm gonna do a complete rewrite. And I did a complete rewrite. I put in all all my new latest understanding of biomechanics. I put brand new pictures of exactly how you do the stretching, how you do the everything. And, and so that's there. That's available for free on, on globalhelp.com. And it has not only the, the, the Ponsetti management, but it's got biomechanics. So that is a way that everybody can get my, my latest understanding on biomechanics, including the calcaneo-pedal unit. That, that's the newest thing in biomechanics. And, and it's all available there. So I feel that without my book being online there's a lot in that monograph alone that will help people around the world to better understand put the poems in children. That's great.
0: So you you alluded to something that's happening in in three months. Where you said that you're transitioning in the next phase of of your life, and it's interesting because I in my my practice here we have some of my partners who are sort of approaching that some faster than others. I'm curious how it's going for you. I mean, we've just spent the last hour and ten minutes talking about this, you know, very complex career, and and then things are going to change. And obviously, you're going to be writing a textbook, which is great. But you know, what are some of the things that you're looking forward to in the next phase?
1: It's really interesting. I think I mentioned Lynn Staley's name during this hour and 10 minutes more than almost anything else I mentioned. He was a model for so many things, including the fact that there are many ways to contribute to the world. One is by being, an, as a physician, being an excellent clinician, having great knowledge, making great ethical decisions about management. And if those management principles include surgery, being the best and safest technical surgeon that you can be, and then being honest in assessment of your results. So it all comes down to honesty and ethics, knowledge, doing things for the right reason, helping kids, which doesn't mean necessarily doing surgery, even though you're a surgeon. So those are all the the principles of what it means to be a great technical, clinical orthopedic surgeon. Some of us choose to do more than that. It's a noble goal to be a clinician. But if you have the interest and you have the inclination to also teach others to do what you do, teach. If you have the knowledge, interest, experience, and ability to test the right answers to advance the the knowledge in the area, do so. And then when you get to be of a certain age, which is less young than you used to be, then you have the choice to say, what do I want to keep doing? Do I want to just buy some bonbons from Costco and sit on the deck, which is okay. Or do I want to continue in one or all the things I've done for all these decades? So when Lynn was 62 is when he had already taken a few years of sabbatical to write books. And he said, you know, I really think I I could do more surgery. I could help the children who present to me, or I can get information out to people around the world. He knew he was going to develop global help. I can keep teaching. That was what he did at age 62. So I'm many years older than that right now. And I know that I have done all the operations that I I can't get any better at the surgeries I do. It doesn't mean that I'm the best surgeon in the world. I think I'm pretty good. My, My results are good. But every operation I do, I don't keep learning from them. I do them faster. I do them more effortlessly, but that's been going on for years now. I don't need to do another operation to prove my worth to myself as a technician. Uh, I still read, I still try to get smarter, I still try to understand things better, and I thought to myself, wow, so that, until my brain starts going, I can really contribute, but not only for the patient I see, but for the people I've trained, for the people I continue to train, for the world, I can continue to contribute to society that way and have my clinic available for the next generation, have my over time for the next generation, where those men and women can then develop their skills, get their 10,000 under their belt so that they can really know that they're doing the best they can. So I don't need to prove that to myself anymore clinically. And as far as knowledge, teaching, discovery, those things never end no matter what field you're in. So I'm really looking forward to not only writing a second edition of my book, I've got a bunch of research projects that I want to complete. There are more I want to start. There are different directions I'm looking at, biomechanically, just things that don't need me to, to treat one more patient. And I can contribute to ways that I want to contribute in this world. And, I, and I'm not afraid of it. I'm absolutely not afraid of it. It
0: sounds like you're going to be almost as busy in retirement as you are <laughs>
1: during your practice. But but I got a small box of bonbons from Costco anyway. <laughs> That's good. Just, just, yeah, for those
0: for those uh, nice afternoons in Seattle. Um, well, good. Well, I've got one more question, um, and it, it's it's sort of funny to think as you do sort of round out the the career that you've had, which is has been so storied. It, when you look back, so I'm in my uh, I'm 43. I'm in my early 40s. I'm curious what advice you might have for young Vince, for 43 year old Vince um, about your sort of how you approached your career and, and, um, you know, how how you managed your life and things like that.
1: Get a mentor. Find a mentor. Mentors can't be assigned to you, but get a mentor. Mentorship has been a subject of a lot more uh, discussion lately. There are articles written in journals about it. There are lectures that we hear at our national and international meetings. Mentorship has always been important. It has not been appreciated for what it is. And as society gets more complicated, as life gets harder, as just as things change, what we do is not that easy. If what we did was that easy, anybody would do it, and they don't. We do. It was always hard. In the olden days, it was not accepted that we would ask for help. Navigating this challenging professional and personal world, it's not a sign of weakness to get help either by a mentor and or by a professional. Life is important. Family is important. Your career is important. Your patients are important. Everything is important. So reach out. Figure out who, and it doesn't have to be one person. You can find one person who you say, wow, I really like this part of this person's professional private life let me see how we can meet. In this other area, I need another mentor. Let me give you this one anecdote, and maybe this will be all that you really want to hear. In 1995, when Lynn retired at age 62, he used to come to our weekly indications conferences our Wednesday morning, who's going to be operating on next week. And then he stopped coming. And And I said, Lynn, why don't don't you come? Well, I don't feel relevant anymore. And I said, Lynn, you got so much knowledge. We all want to know what what you think. And he started coming again, and then I wasn't seeing him. So about a year or so later, I had seen the movie Tuesdays with Maury. And and so it's about this this young reporter. He, He did sports reporting, and his former college coach had ALS. And he was debilitated. So they got they met each other again after a long time. And and this young reporter was out of control. He was just running every place professionally. He lost contact with his family. He was a mess. And they decided on Tuesdays they'd get together and they would just talk. And the coach helped him understand about life. And the coach died of ALS. But this guy just turned his life around because he had a mentor, that he understood life better. So Lynn and I Starting about a year or so after he retired, met at our favorite Thai restaurant on Tuesdays once a month to just talk. And we live near each other, and it's right on the, on Lake Union in Seattle, just a really nice community. Um, and we would just go there and we just talk about whatever. And as life got busier for me, it went from once a month to once every six weeks to once every two months. And for the last few years before he passed away, we would see each other still Tuesday every four to five months, we would just go there and talk to each other. And about anything and everything, religion, politics, medicine, everything in the world, that's mentorship. That's natural. And just think Tuesdays with Maury or my Tuesdays with Lynn, (laughs) it's invaluable.
0: That's such a great story. That, that was a perfect answer. Well, Vince, uh, this has been incredible. You've offered so much of, uh, so much insight and, and, uh, so much of your time. And, and I really can't thank you enough. I, like I said, I, I had put together sort of a list of people I really wanted to talk to and you were high on it. And, um, I really glad that we, uh, that we had this opportunity to talk and thank you for, again, I, like I said, I, I honestly can attribute the majority of my early foot and ankle knowledge to that one time at IPOS. I still think of the foot as a as a twisted up towel. I still teach <laughs> that way, um, and so so you've done a tremendous amount for me in terms of my understanding of the foot. So thank you.
1: Well, well, thank you, and uh, I I really appreciate the effort you're going through to to put this on. And there's no other venue I know like this to to get to know people beyond what you might read about them or, or hear about them, but actually talk to talk to people. In fact, I think you're, this is brilliant that what you've done here because this is an extension of what has been accomplished very successfully at IPOS. If you come up to anybody who you've read about, any orthopedic surgeon sees somebody that they've read their, their research at the POSNA meeting, it's a very different interaction then if you if they if the young person comes up to that to me, that same individual at IPAS. At IPAS, we're there just for those interactions. We don't bring our spouses, we don't bring our partners, we don't, you know, we are just there to interact. What a great venue. At the academy at PASNA, I mean, we will all, because we're pediatric surgeons, we're a different kind of people, we'll be personable and we'll be polite, but we won't generally have the time to just sit and just talk. The other people we don't know so i think what you've done here because i've seen some of your podcasts is you've made people that that i know but but i now know better make us real <laughs>
0: well i appreciate it i'm glad that we were able to, to include you as well so thank you and thank you for uh, for listening to the other ones
1: well uh, thank you and uh yeah i hope to see you real soon at a meeting where we can take our masks off
0: <laughs> i agree i agree i think we're all looking forward to that so thank you